Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world, uh, on the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction." suffering wrong as, they, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Hmm. 
Charles Ponzi was born in Italy in 1882, and he came to the United States when he was 21 years of age. He was a swindler and a con artist who became infamous here for his money-making scam that he hawked to very ambitious Americans in that day. His scheme involved supposedly buying these discounted postal reply coupons from other countries and then redeeming them at face value here in the United States. And so he promised his would-be clients 50% profit in 45 days or 100% profit in 90 days. In reality, all he was doing was paying earlier investors with the investments of later investors. And he had to, so therefore he had to keep luring more and more investors for his plan to, quote, work. Well, his scheme ran for just over a year before it all collapsed, and it cost his investors $20 million, which would be $250 million in today's money. Well, he was not the first person to use this fraudulent scheme, but it was his name that forever became associated with it, and we know the Ponzi scheme, and we use that expression. He was not the first, and he wouldn't be the last to try this thing. Most notably, just a decade ago, uh, Bernie Madoff was arrested for this very thing, and he swindled investors out of $18 billion. But being conned... In big ways like that, or in in small ways, it stings. I mean, whether it's losing your entire retirement savings in a scam like that, an investment scam, or losing five dollars at uh, you know a, a rigged carnival game, uh, it hurts. And it doesn't just hurt; it, it it can harm us. We can we can be harmed by these kinds of scams. But of all of the cons that people fall prey to in the world, and there are many, none is more, dece- none is more damaging than the deception of religious phonies. Those swindlers who profit in hawking counterfeit truth. And it's a lucrative business. There are, there are, there are masses of people who give nodding approval to those who do this very thing, and, and they do it over uh, the radio, they do it on television, they do it in, through bookstores, they do it on the internet, and they do it in pulpits uh, big and, of big and small churches every week. Well, in Second Peter 2, so just take that, and let's look at Second Peter 2 now and see what we read in this context. Second Peter 2, this rugged fisherman turned apostle of Jesus Christ. He does not, as we just saw, he does not hold back in calling out these pseudo-Christian con artists. I mean, he blisters them in this section. They, because they claim to offer answers and hope, but all they bring is lies and despair. They act like they've embraced, quote, Christian freedom but they are really enslaved to sin and they're just doing everything they can to enslave others. They look like they're successful and they're prosperous and everything's going great, but the reality is that they are storing judgment up for themselves um, in, in the coming day of wrath. So Peter 
Peter writes to address this. He writes this whole letter, not just this chapter, but the three chapters here, to, to help these believers find their stability, find their stability in Christ's sufficient grace. This is why we're calling this series Growing Grace. We've explained this already. But So in the face of persecution, in the face of false teaching, he wanted these young believers to band together in these churches, and keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the big umbrella over this whole letter. To keep their footing in Christ as everything around them seemed to be crumbling. And so in chapter 2, he zeroes in on one of the main threats to these believers that they needed to be prepared for. Those who were turning people away from Christ and away from the gospel, and away from His grace, and the sufficiency of it. So he's, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, and his intention here, even in chapter 2, is not to terrify them. He is writing to encourage them. I know it may not seem like that. Everything he says here by way of condemnation is interlaced with words of comfort. And I think we'll see that as we walk through this chapter. And so, keep that heading of growing grace in mind as we look at this central chapter in this letter. We've seen that grace is, is rooted in Christ and what He has done for us. We saw that in the opening verses. We saw that that grace that is rooted in Christ, it bears fruit in our lives. And that grace has been revealed in the Scriptures to us. And now He's going to say, grace though, it is opposed by enemies. There are enemies of grace and these enemies try to inf- infiltrate the church. So we need to be aware. And So the kind of the overarching idea and the, the, the statement under which we're going to be working for this week and a couple Sundays from now is that opponents of grace are always a clear and present danger for the church. They are, they're always going to be opponents of grace. What do I mean by that? Why not just say false teachers? Because we have a series called Growing Grace. We have to get grace in there somehow. No. But as, you, as we read through this, I think you can see that. What are they doing? They're undercutting the gospel of grace. They're denying the Master who, who bought them. They're blaspheming the gospel, the way of truth. They're distorting grace and, giving, and making it license to sin. They're, they're moving Christ to the margins. They're denying Christ's future return. And, and therefore, they're undermining the hope that we're to fully set on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Peter has said. So, so this, these are opponents of grace. Like Charles Ponzi, these con artists, these opponents of grace, these false teachers, they, they were not the first, though, and they, will not, and they would not be the last. They're not the first. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes about the world's very first scammer. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So that's where it began. That's where the scam began. And then a little later he describes those who would, who would kind of follow in the steps of, of that great deceiver and his disciples, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So you notice the methods that the devil uses, that the deceiver uses here. 
He deceives. He leads minds astray. He clouds the simplicity of the Christian faith. He disguises himself as good and as glorious. He enlists others in this mass deception. So this is, this is how he works. So you have these false teachers, these opponents of grace. They, they often appear doctrinally sound and personally attractive and winsome and sincere and, and logically compelling. But, but make no mistake, they are deceivers, mind-benders and truth-twisters. And so in these verses, Peter warns his readers back then and today to be aware of their wicked schemes. And so we're going to look at this chapter as a whole and, and, and do this this week and again the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's more like one long sermon, a ten-point sermon split in two. Um, and so you can be glad it's over two weeks. That's a, that's a lot to squeeze in. Thomas Carinard's going to preach next Sunday and looking forward to that out of Ephesians 1. But the, the general structure of Second Peter 2, though, so if I can just give you... Um, kind of the, 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 the broad sweep of this chapter. In verses 1 to 3, we could say this. We see their description. Their description. There's this kind of summary statement about these false teachers. In verses 4 to 10, it's all about their destruction. Now that, that word destruction or destructive, it's a big word in this chapter. And you probably picked up on that as we, as we read through it. That the false teaching itself is destructive. It's destructive heresies. But also, the false teachers uh, themselves, there's going to be destruction brought on them. And so destruction is a big, big word in this text. And then verses 11 to 22, there's a lot going on in these verses. I could just maybe put a heading, their depravity. And so we just have these, these blistering words describing these opponents of grace. It's a very lively chapter. <laughs> you can, I picture Peter quite animated as he's as he's writing these things. He often is doubling back and he's tripling back on himself and so he's repeating things and, and so and because of that I, I think it's wise to try to take the whole chapter in uh, together. I thought about doing it all in one Sunday because uh, I, I think it's helpful to see it in its, as a unit but I'm gonna, it's not going to happen. So just as, <laughs> it's a nice thought. Um, well, one last thing before we dive in here. We we're talking about false teachers. We're not talking about brothers and sisters in Christ whom we disagree with. I, I, I know of some who have a tendency when there's any kind of disagreement, they, they throw the H word out there really quick, heresy. And so they want to say everything that there's disagreement, it's, it's heretical. And that's, that can be dangerous. So we're going to talk about, obviously, we do need to be able to call out destructive heresies. But in reality, there is a little heretic in all of us. I've heard Pastor Dow say there's a little Pharisee in all of us. There's a little heretic in every single one of us. We, are all, we all say things that are not true. We all misrepresent Scripture in some ways. We're all guilty of false teaching in one sense, in the sense that, uh, you know, I mean, whenever there's a doctrinal disagreement of any kind over any matter, However insignificant it seems, somebody is wrong. Maybe both people are wrong, but at least one person's wrong. And so somebody is saying something that's false. That's not what we're talking about here in 2 Peter 2. I mean, there's a, this is a categorical, this is, this is a technical category as Peter is using false teacher and false teaching. 
And so we need to think in that. This isn't simply about our humanness or our finiteness and we, we make mistakes. That's not it. No, he's, there are malicious motives here. And these are significant, serious doctrinal matters. And so just keep that in mind as we, as we walk through this. So what we're going to see as we walk through this chapter this week and in a couple of weeks, we're going to say ten profiling statements about, about these opponents of grace, about false teachers. And uh, there may be more than ten by the time we get to two weeks from now. I don't know, but uh, we'll say ten now. We're going to cover five of those today. First thing I'll say is this. Opponents of grace are inventive. They're inventive. Their message is made up. That's what I mean. Their, their scheme is created, it's, or it's at least pieced together from a, a kind of a hodgepodge and pulling a little bit here and putting it together in their own minds. As opposed to truth that has been revealed to us by God. So as they're, they're, not, they're not basing their teaching upon God's revelation of Himself. They're basing their teaching upon what's come out of their own minds. The point is most clearly seen as you compare chapter 1 of 2 Peter with chapter 2 of 2 Peter. So put those alongside one another and you, you see this distinction. The false teachers in Peter's day, they were accusing Peter and they were accusing the apostles of making up their teachings about Jesus. Remember, they saw this last week. And, and, and of fabricating their message. But Peter made it very clear that, the, that their message of grace in Christ that he and the other apostles preached was, was not their own invention. It was, it, was, it was theirs because of divine revelation. And so the Old Testament Scriptures that they were, they were drawing from, they were, they were prophetic, they were pointing to Christ. And he says at the end of chapter 1, they, they were not produced by men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it was God's doing, and their Christ-centered Gospel was confirmed by Moses and by Elijah and ultimately by God Himself in the transfiguration. So Peter's made that 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 so clear, but in contrast, the false teacher's message is not founded upon the bedrock of God's revealed word, but upon the shifting sands of their own made up, as he says in verse three, their false words. It's just this they've made these things up. And you see it in verse one. The message that they proclaim is brought in. They secretly bring in these heresies. So it's, it's a foreign contaminant that's, that's brought into the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They're not going back and seeing what God has revealed. They're bringing stuff in. Bringing it in from the outside. Infusing the church with their own ideas and thoughts that are outside of biblical doctrine and beliefs. Their concern is not understanding what God has spoken about Christ. They, they have no interest in, in submitting to that, to any kind of authoritative revelation, taking it that. No, instead, they, verse 10 says, they despise authority. In the context there, it's, it's probably talking about angelic authority or maybe apostolic authority, but scriptural, they despise authority. It doesn't really say. They're, they're not submitting to some standard or some. Objective revelation from God. Verse 15, they've forsaken the right way. Verse 12, 21, excuse me, they have turned away from the Holy Commandment. And so, what's clear as you lay chapter 2 alongside chapter 1 is, is, 
is that true and false teachers, they operate from a radically different source. True teachers, they don't follow cleverly devised myths. Chapter 1, verse 16, concerning Christ. We, we don't invent what we're saying. We simply are proclaiming what's been revealed by God to us in the Scriptures. But the opponents of Christ and His grace, they're skilled at devising and propagating clever myths, stories. They develop whole ministries based upon their own creativity rather than drawing upon the revealed Word of God. Now that's not to say that they don't give lip service to the Bible. And they don't hold up the Bible, I mean, in, in our day, and, 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 and say that they're students of the Bible. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But, but they'll quote verses. There will be lots of God talk. But the Bible is seen as like clay in their hands that, that they mold to fit their purposes rather than some perfect, sufficient, authoritative word that they must submit to. It's a totally different view of, of the Bible. And so I think the caution and the encouragement to us is, and, and this is part of Peter's writing, is he's wanting these believers to be stable in knowing the, 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 what Christ has done and being deeply rooted in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that grace and knowledge is revealed to us in the Scriptures. He's saying, but, but listen, the other side of that is churches, you're at great, we become, churches become at great risk when, they, when the Bible becomes kind of pushed to the side or pushed to the back burner. Thinking we need to substitute something newer and better for this old book. Or that we need to supplement it somehow because it's deficient in some way. That's, that's dangerous. And again, we talked about this last week and we've talked about it throughout this letter. Don't just think me and my Bible. Like, like this is the only application. You and I, we are blessed to be able to read, to study, to memorize um, Scripture on our own. And we have copies of the Scriptures probably all over the place and on our devices. But God's primary intended means for our protection against enemies of grace like this, and His primary means for our growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ is when we publicly read and preach and hear and study and sing and pray the Scriptures together. This is, this is why we gather together on the Lord's Day, why He's called us to this. This is why we gather in small groups. It's, these, these things are not just events in our calendar. They're not just religious duties that we attend. They're not boxes that we check. These are fresh streams. That, that fresh streams of fresh water for our thirsty souls. The Lord has intended these things to give us strength and stability. And so they, they keep us looking to Christ, not to something else, which is exactly what opponents to grace, false teachers will want us to do. Looking to keep us, they, they want to keep us from looking to Christ as our only sufficiency and satisfaction. So that's the first thing. Opponents of grace are inventive. Second, in this profile, opponents of grace grow like kudzu in God's field. And, and I'm using that imagery in 1 Corinthians 3.9 of the church as being God's field. Now, if, if you're new to this area and don't know what kudzu is, or if you're listening online from some other region, I don't know where kudzu grows exactly, but it grows here very well. But kudzu is that invasive vine that was brought over from Japan and now is just spreading all over the place. 
it, it, and, and you see it around here and it grows and it smothers trees and shrubs and kills everything underneath and spreads fast, it tolerates all kinds of conditions, it, and it's hard to kill. Well, false teaching, what the, the picture we get here is it's also very persistent and it's very invasive among God's people. Look at verse 1 again. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So that contrast there in verse 1, the but, he's been talking about uh, the, the prophets that spoke in the Old Testament re- prophesying concerning Jesus Christ. And so you have this true revelation from God as these men were born along by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, but there were also false prophets among God's people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So false prophets arose in the past. The history of, of Israel is just, the landscape is just dotted with these heresies and false teachers and false teaching. And so ever since the, 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 the father of lies deceived Eve in the garden, there, has, there have been these false teachers who have preyed upon the unsuspecting. And so in Deuteronomy 13, just an example, Moses warned Israel about these false prophets who would come performing signs and wonders and saying these wonderful things. And why? To get people to go after false gods. And that's exactly what happened throughout Israel's history. So Peter's telling his readers, this is nothing new. And and notice he doesn't say there might be, there's the potential for, or there could be. No, he says, there will be false teachers among you. Now, I, I brought a, this question into our staff meeting. I love our times every Tuesday morning when we get to meet a staff, and sometimes, uh, you know, we just got business. I, I, I wanted discussion, and I got it this week, and I was thankful. And so, because I've been looking at this passage, reading this warning, reading this description that we read public, that I read publicly, you know, these insatiable. Uh, you, know, you know, these ant, they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. I'm reading this description, I'm thinking, what in the world does this look like in our context? And Peter says, they will be among you. I mean, what might false teachers among you look like today, here, in Baraka, in, in the wider church? I mean, no church is exempt from this threat. But I, but as we talked, and, and I was very helpful, I, I think the threat can take many different forms, but it's just as real a threat. I mean, Eric was sharing some of this about their time in Senegal, and I, I, I've heard this from others. I mean, you, you just take some, some church in some tiny village in South America or in Africa or in some rural part of Asia, it might be threatened in a way that's very similar to Peter's readers here. That... that they may not have Bibles like we have Bibles. They, they may not have a copy of the Scriptures, even translated into their language. They may, they may be completely dependent upon oral instruction. They, they, don't, they, they, they don't have generations of Bible teaching or generations of Christians. They may be the first or maybe second generation of believers in that whole region. So you can see how easy it would be for this small huddled group of believers for, for some false teacher to come in wearing some title, I'm the pastor so-and-so, the bishop of whatever, and coming in with this title and begin you know, teaching that week and twisting the truth and selling his cleverly devised myths, myths and exploiting the church for his own greedy gain. 
And in no time, that church can be taken off of the, 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 the main trail and taken away from the gospel. So you, so you can see that certainly, that happens all the time probably around the world. I mean, Eric shared some examples in, in their context. And in our context, it will probably look a little different, but it's no less dangerous. I mean, it will probably be more gradual, more subtle. I mean, in it, in it, we, have, we have dozens of English Bible translations. I use, you know, Bible Gateway. use those apps and you just pick your translation. And we have, we have so many, uh, so much work that's been done to translate the Bible into English. And we have shelves full of Bibles. I do. And, and, and commentaries that fill my walls. And hundreds of books that are available to us exposing cults and, and you know, uh, challenging false teachers and false teaching. I mean, there's so many resources and so the scenario of one guest speaker coming in and spending a week with us and leading us off course is probably not that likely. But that does not mean we're exempt from this risk or danger. It just probably looks a little different. I said, kind of as we were talking, one of the statements that came to mind is that error in the church often runs on the rails of the culture. And so... The slow and steady drip, just an example in our own culture, the slow and steady drip of our culture's obsession with feeling good about ourselves, it has led many to deny the reality of hell. It's not a comfortable doctrine. The abundance of writers and the writing, and we have blogs and books and social media and just all these things, it can, it can slowly have the impact of just making the Bible seem like white noise. It's just one of, of other voices that are all equal. So you see how in our culture that, that can have an impact and we deny the inspiration of the Bible. Our church's hype, or, or, excuse me, our culture's hyper-individualism it tempts believers to try and live out their Christian faith on their own in isolation of other believers. And so you, are, you put yourself at tremendous risk when you do that. You, you, you can, it's, it's going to be easily drawn away by some strange teaching that you're finding on the internet and you know, listening to hours and hours and hours of, of audio and reading all these articles and following these rabbit trails. If, if you're unchecked by the wider church, you can see how, how that can happen. I've seen it. I've seen that one many times. I mean, so, so it's, it may look differently in different locations in different times, but it's the same thread. I mean, I think as you look in Scripture, just even in the New Testament times, the, the warnings in Hebrews and, and the way that the, those Jewish Christians were, were being uh, tempted was very different than the way these Gentile background believers through coming out of raw paganism were being tempted by false teachers. And so one was a more religious form and laws and regulations. This other was all about sensuality. And so even in that context, you see the differences. But... But regardless, false teaching is and always will be alive and well in this world. In all parts, it's, it's noxious, it's invasive, it's persistent. And none of us are exempt from the risk of being affected by it. And there's a reason for that. Because it's often so subtle. I mean, it doesn't come with, you know, skull and crossbones on there and, look, you know, looking scary and... And uh, 666, you know, across the head of the, the false teacher or something like that. It, it seems harmless, and it even oftentimes seems very helpful. 
in what I'm going through. So that's the third statement in this kind of profiling false teachers, is that opponents of grace, they try and operate under the radar. They try and operate under the radar. Look again at verse 1. There, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're, 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 they're not up front about their agenda. They're, they aren't open about acknowledging that they're bringing in um, something, some teaching from the outside that's going to pervert the plain meaning of the Scriptures. They're not upfront about that. They No, they're subtle. They cleverly work in a little error here and another error there. And, and they use religious words to throw us off their scent until they've kind of taken people away from the true gospel. And this is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 that we read earlier, that Satan disguises himself as this angel of light. And, 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 and his servants disguise themselves as these servants of righteousness. And so it's, they're trying to fly under the radar. Trying not to be noticed, not to stand out. So false teachers, they use subtlety. The, the word in, throughout this chapter is deception. To gain followers. They don't necessarily threaten. They entice. See that word a couple times in this chapter. They entice people to follow them. They're luring them. Presenting the bait, hiding the hook. They promise freedom, verse 19. So we see, we see them kind of trying to, trying to blend in. They, 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 they even become part of the assembly. They went to the Lord's Day gatherings when Peter's in this context. They ate meals with people in the church. Verse 13 says, They revel in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they're hanging out with believers, they're eating with them, they're talking with them, they're, they're spending time with them while they're reveling in their deceptions. These feasts here probably refer to those love feasts that, that the early Christians had this tradition of, and the, uh, this custom of coming together for a feast, kind of like a potluck dinner or something, before or after they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And, and so these guys, though, they're there, they're among them. In Jude, uh, verse 12, which Jude is a close parallel to Second Peter, I mean, very close parallel, but Jude says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So this is, this is they're, 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 they're among you. These opponents of grace, they know the ropes. They know how to blend in. They know the subtleties of, 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 of Christian subculture and of the Christian lifestyle. They know how to talk, they know how to dress, they know how to, they know how to act, they know how to vote, they know how to post on social media. They, they, they know how to keep from blowing their cover. It's subtle. I mean, Saturdays, there are often people walking through my neighborhood, and they're wanting to talk with me about, you know, they, they, they start, the conversation starts, you know, do you ever wonder what's wrong with the world? Why are there so many problems? Or how can you have a better family? Or how wonderful Jesus is. They're propagating heresy. They're flying under the radar. Warren Wearsby said, The false teachers use our vocabulary, but they do not use our dictionary. And so, so there's this, these, they redefine words. So you hear words like sin and, and righteousness and inspiration and salvation and God and Jesus Christ and resurrection, but they're, the meanings have all changed. A much older quote here comes from Irenaeus out of the second century, but again, this is something that's always been with us and always will be with us. It's so invasive. But he in, 
encountered numerous false teachers in his day, and he wrote this five-volume work against false teachings and that were present in his day. And he, he spoke about the kind of the devious nature and the subtlety of it. And he said this, Error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed it should at once be detected. But it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form it may up, it, to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than the truth itself. So this is one of the great dangers with, with false teaching, is its subtlety. It it's often appears intelligent, compassionate, um, popular, innovative, sophisticated. They have, they, have compa- they have a compelling answer for everything. Every question you ask, they've got, they've got an answer. They're, they're skilled wordsmiths. They, they quote these hidden and forgotten sources and, and they provide clever arguments. It's, it's, this is what makes it difficult to detect. It, it's what why it's re- required always to be on our guard as a band of believers. Now, just a word of caution. It, it, it's easy for us to point to very public controversies in other churches. And there have been notable examples of this. It's easy to look at the failures in certain major denominations and the doctrinal departures. But there can be this kind of sense of smugness about us if we're not careful. And we think we're we're okay. We're exempt from we imagine that we're safe. We're immune from all of that kind of confusion. We're a Bible church. We we preach the Bible expositionally. Listen, no church is safe from this threat. No church is immune from this kind of subtle infiltration that will lead people further away from the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, they tend to fly under the radar. Fourth statement. We'll make, try to make two more here. Opponents of grace ride the wave of popularity. They ride the wave of popularity. Now, we, we might think that the risk of false teaching is just a few kind of simpletons, easy to dissuade, you know, easy to convince, uh, persuade people that will that, that those people might be tempted. So we got to really watch for you know those. But the rest of us, we should be okay. Surely not many will be drawn away. No, but look at what Peter says, verse two: Many will follow their sensuality. We will talk about the sensuality part later in a couple weeks. For now, just notice: many will follow them. They can, and they often do, have large followings. They can be very successful numerically and financially. They, it's easy for people, even Christians, to think that if a man or woman has a huge following, they must be on to something that's good and true. And this is the very American way to think. <laughs> and if a man builds a megachurch, many people, even Christians, will, will look to him as a leader without really even questioning what he's teaching. And again, we'll talk more about the sensuality next time, but you can see this is what Peter's going to say. It's one of the things they draw, these, these large followings, they cater to the flesh. They soothe people with words that appeal to their sensual desires. And so their messages, they score high on the public opinion polls. They, they can attract crowds. A large audience is not 
the determiner of what's right and wrong in terms of a message. Well, I mean, we see this like never before in our own day. We live in the age of mass communication. Things go viral, not just cat videos, but heresy. I mean, things can spread so fast. And so this, this book that's the answer, or this, this speaker, and you've got to listen to this, and you see these things spreading out so quickly, getting so much traction so fast. I just say, don't let popularity be the grid through which you evaluate the validity of, of a message, of a teaching, or a teacher. That's not to say that all teachers and preachers who are popular and, and authors who are popular are necessarily heretical. That's not my point at all. And it's not to say that uh, unpopular writers and speakers can be uh, false teachers. But just know that deception often happens on a very large scale. Don't be duped by large numbers. Many will follow opponents of grace. Last statement. And we're going to come and eat and drink at the table. Is that opponents of grace, they deliver a destructive message. They deliver a destructive message. And this is the most important thing to understand. We're not just talking about teachers who aren't well-trained or who are sort of ill-informed or just kind of make some you know, mistakes and innocent mistakes. They're a little careless with the Word or something like that. No, they're blasphemous. The Word is used four times here. Verse 1, again, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them. This is it's the first time we see heresy used like this. It was a, originally in just in Peter's day. It was just kind of a common word, a neutral word. I know it didn't have the you know the sound that it has to our ears. It just referred to a teaching or a school of thought. It literally just means something like choice, a different opinion. It's a it's an alternative, an option, and and it came to be used to refer to factions and divisions in the church. But Peter's the first one to use this term in that more technical sense, which became very common in the second century to talk about heresy in the way we think of it. But but he but he by adding the word destructive to it, he's showing that he's talking about seriously wrong uh, doctrine that destroys lives and churches. Assaults from false teachers, they take on core truths of the Christian faith. They did in Peter's day and they do today. The inspiration of Scripture. And so this is, you see this in his own day. They're, they're, they're undermining the, the um, truthfulness and the, and the inspiration of Old Testament prophecy. The, the fact that there's one eternal triune God who's revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're denying the deity of Jesus Christ. The full deity and humanity of Christ. Christ's virgin birth, sinless death, substitutionary, or sinless life, substitutionary death for sin, miraculous bodily resurrection, uh, literal future return. And not, again, something else these false teachers in Peter's day were denying. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That eternal, the, the eternal life of believers, the condemnation of unbelievers. This is what's at stake here in Second Peter and what's often at stake in false teaching today. It may not be obvious on the surface, but this is, these are the things that, that make them so destructive. And you compare chapter 1 again with chapter 2 in Second Peter, and you get to the, the nub of it here. In Second Peter 1, for true believers, Jesus Christ is central. It's what we saw in this, 
in this first chapter, and it was so beautiful and so wonderful. And now we're you know, kind of in the filth of chapter 2. But in chapter 1, Christ is at the center. He's the blazing center. The faith we have is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 1. The, the grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 2. Through Jesus' power, we have everything we need for life. Verse 3. That, that we're just getting started. And so Jesus is at the center, the very center of true teaching. But the false teachers, they, they push Jesus to the margins. They move, it's not they don't talk about Him. They, they don't deny that He exists. They don't, they won't use His name. No. But, but they push Him to the side and that's what makes this alternate teaching, this heresy, so destructive. It doesn't move us closer and closer to Jesus by faith. It moves us further and further from Him. It, it doesn't move us to see Him as more and more sufficient. It's, it moves us to see Him as less and less necessary. And so these, these religious con artists and the, and the teachings that they propagate, look at what he says, they even deny the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bought them. So they deny the Master. The biggest flaw in their thinking is their denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. Once that basic fundamental truth is denied, the floodgates are open for all kinds of twisted doctrines and, and other sins. They're denying Christ. When he says they deny the Master who, who bought or who redeemed them, what in the world does that mean? Now, we don't have time to linger on this, but does it mean these guys were born again at some point, and, now, and yet, so, but now they denied Him and they lost their salvation? Well, of course not. That flies in the face of so much of Scripture. Does it mean that these false teachers were really believers and they remain believers? I don't think, though. I don't think so. I think he's just simply saying that they're rejecting Jesus Christ's payment for their sins. Christ paid the price for sin by dying in the place of wicked humanity, taking our deserved punishment on Himself as a righteous substitute. Through, through Christ's death, or though Christ's death is sufficient to to, for the payment of everybody's sins, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, only those who believe in Him receive the benefit of this salvation. John three sixteen to 18. Now, I realize that interpretation may seem like an alternate version or an adjustment to how some take the L and tulip. If you don't know what that means, that's just fine. But here's what Peter's saying. These false teachers, they're in a really sticky predicament here. A dangerous predicament. Because they had heard the true preaching of Christ's salvation and they rejected it. And they're leading others to do the same. They replaced it with false teachings about the Master that they denied. And because of this, they remain lost and they face swift destruction. Verse 3 says. So, this is it. The opponents of grace, they, they deliver this destructive message. And, and, and I realize Christians have often divided, have wrongly divided over very minor doctrinal disputes and personality conflicts and other petty, petty issues. And those kind of divisions are, are, are sin. But it is also dangerous to minimize doctrine to the point where in the name of love and unity, we tolerate false teachers who deny fundamental doctrines of the faith. And I'm not advocating for, like, watch blogs or something like that, so don't get too excited here if that's your thing. Or, or that we, we, you know, become a church that's you know, obsessed with heresy hunting. That's not it. This is not to be the leading edge of a church. It, this is not what Peter's calling 
these churches to. He, he's calling us to grow and find our stability in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as we do, we need to be aware that there will always be those who oppose that grace. Religious Ponzi schemes abound. They're everywhere. They feed off of our frenzied desire for more. Well, what this table does is it always brings us back to Christ. It, 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 this is God's design in it. There's this constant barrage of voices telling us that we need something more. We need something newer. Eric alluded to this earlier when we read Hebrews 1. We need something better. We need something higher. We need to look inside of ourselves. No, the, the, these whisperings, they started way back in the Garden of Eden and they haven't stopped. But this table, it draws us back to something foundational, something fundamental, something very old, and something very powerful. Some would say that the key to a vibrant spiritual life is to detach ourselves from old things. We need new ideas, new experiences. We don't need to be tethered to these old man-made traditions. Listen, we don't ever want to stray from this. We don't want to stray from Christ, from the old rugged cross. 